Well, good morning, Sailorville. If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find Ephesians chapter 1, where we will be until 2027. I'm kidding. But we will be there for a while. Ephesians chapter 1. And I love that song, Graves into Gardens, and especially the line, there's nothing is better than you. I love that line because the word better is a term of comparison. Uh, When we say something is better, that means exactly that. We're making a comparison. And I think of Psalm 63 in verse 3, where the psalmist says, your loving kindness is better than life itself. Therefore, my lips will praise you. There's nothing better than God. Amen? And nothing better than his word to be able to get into on a weekly basis to refresh our souls, inform our minds, and convert our hearts to Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, Ephesians chapter 1. You know, when we baptize individuals, as we did just a couple of weeks ago at the lake, and there's a whole bunch of people that need to get baptized or just in waiting, hope to do that in the next month or two, we recognize the ba- in the baptismal formula, we recognize the three persons of the Godhead. You notice that? When we say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are pictured in the waters of baptism. But the Godhead is recognized in the, in the waters of baptism. And the reason the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all recognized is because they are all involved in your salvation if indeed you're saved. I never assume everyone here is saved. Now, in fact, if I assume anything, I assume many of you are not. And you still are not in Christ. You're outside of Christ, uh, as many others here are indeed in Christ. But when, we, when it comes to salvation, uh, I like to think of it this way. The Father selects, chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, right? The Son saves, and the Spirit seals. The Father selected eternity past. The Son saved the time of the cross and subsequent resurrection. And the Spirit seals, that's actual, that's real-time stuff when you place your faith in Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. That's an easy way to think about the Godhead involved in your salvation. Why do I point that out? Because all three members of the Trinity are mentioned in in this, this incredible paragraph that begins this incredible book of the Bible. These opening words of the Ephesians gush forth with an explosion of praise to our triune God, for his multifaceted gift of what we have and he has given to us in Christ and all the things that come out of it. What you're looking at here is what we have already addressed over the last couple of weeks. We have three more this morning as we unwrap God's masterpiece of salvation. But before we do that, let's get the context again. Let's, let's, put, it, let's put these gifts into their context And remember, this is one sentence. Paul just couldn't put a period. He just had, I mean, in our English Bibles, there's a couple of sentences here, but verses 3 through 14, one sentence of run-on praise to God. Here it is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, 
with which he blessed us in the beloved, that would be Jesus, and now where we're at today. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan, in which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. In him, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ may be to the praise of his glory. Now, you can say amen anytime you want, okay? In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory. So until now, we, the focus has been on Father God, the Father selects. And then, as we said, the Son saves. So in verses 7 through 12, and we're just looking at 7 and 8 this morning, it's the focus on the Son. The Spirit is in verses 13 and 14. But look at these marvelous gifts. Chosen, predestined, loved, adopted, accepted. And we have three more in Christ this morning. And the first one we want to focus on is we, in Christ we are, say it everybody, you're redeemed. What a word. This, hence the title of the message. I can't get away from this word. Redemption. It's one of the richest theological words, terms, concepts anywhere in Scripture. There are actually three words in the New Testament uh, that are all taken from the marketplace of every major city. Every major city, if you've been on one of these tours that I've led, if you've been in Corinth or Rome, or, or if you were, we went to uh, uh, Ephesus, they all have a place that was called the Agora. The Agora, think, when you think of the Agora, you think of city center, where everybody goes, where all the politics, all the athletic events, all the social activity is taking place. It was also known as the marketplace. The Roman world understood this term. It's where the buzz, it's where it was happening, where you wanted to be, where it was cool, everybody hip and cool, went to the Agora. The, the words in the New Testament depicting redemption were veritable word pictures in and of themselves. Both would The use of these words would transport your mind into the Agora and export it out of the Agora, this public marketplace where food, clothing, furniture, and slaves, Rome had 60 million of them, were bought and sold like furniture. So those words, you don't need to remember, but you can hear the word agora in a couple of them. Uh, there's the word agorazo, you hear the word agora, and that means to buy in the marketplace. You go in there and you purchase something, okay? The agora, to buy in the marketplace. And the more, uh, more frequently used word is the, is the word exagorazo, ek, you hear the word out, to come out of, and that means to buy out of 
the marketplace. So now I've gone into the marketplace. I've not only purchased something, but I've taken it out of the marketplace, okay? That's the idea in the word exagerazo. But the word here for redemption is neither of those. It's a different word still taking us into the agora. It's from the root, root, root word lutreo. It's, it's, it's the word uh, apalutrosis. Apa it literally means to buy back and release. It literally pictures untying somebody who's been tied up. In fact, Josephus, who was not a Christian, he was a Jewish historian, wrote and used this word, uh, apolutreo, this word that's used for redemption. He used it about uh, uh, to refer to a prisoner who was released. Somebody paid for him to be released. So here's the deal. Redemption is to purchase and set free by paying a price. That's what redemption is. Purchase and set free by paying a price. So, uh, many of you know that our church has been involved uh, in places all around the world missionally, and a place where we've literally set our hearts upon over the last 15 years has been Togo, West Africa. In Togo, that little little finger-shaped country uh, right on the armpit of, of West Africa, one of the poorest places on earth. Uh, we have two hospitals, north and south. We just built the northern hospital. We have missionaries there. We've had missionaries going and coming. We've sent, I want to say dozens, I don't want to exaggerate, probably a dozen groups there to build, interact with the missionaries. I've been there. I've been in the villages. It's just an amazing place to be. Uh, but years earlier, uh, in that very area in West Africa, there was a missionary that was interacting with a tribal chief on... Um, what his word, what the tribal language word was for redemption. And without hesitation, the chief said, we do have a word. It's, the word is God took our heads out. <laughs> well, that didn't really help, okay? It's like, ugh, you know, he's looking for something a little more impactful, you know? What? God? No, the, but, the, but the chief said, hey, well, you don't get it, but all of us West Africans do. Because Back when slaves were still being exported to places like the United States and Brazil and other places, um, they would enslave our people and put them in neck chains, neck collars, chained to one another. And as they would make their way through the villages to the coast where they would be shipped out, occasionally a chief within that village would recognize a friend and he would negotiate with the new slave owner with silver, gold, and ivory to buy back his friend. And whenever he did so, they would say, God took his head out, out from the collar. And that became the perfect word for redemption. Some of you here right now and watching online, you are still in the collar. You are still in the collar of sin. Jesus himself said in John 8, he who sins is a slave to sin. Have you ever read that? And no amount of money can ever buy you out of that. I sat with somebody some time ago in their home, was sharing these things. His church was literally a half a mile from the home we were in. He goes, I've been given to that church for 20 years. He said it just like that to me. And I looked at him and I said, do you think that'll help you get to heaven? He goes, 
well, it can't hurt, can it? He was dead serious. Listen, salvation is something you can't buy, but it must be bought. You can't buy it, but it must be bought. And the psalmist said, the redemption of their soul is costly. No amount is ever enough. Have you ever read that? Psalm 49, verse 8, by the way, for a reference. The word redemption literally conveys the idea of buying something back. Remember that. It conveys the idea of buying something back. So salvation is free. Can I get an amen? But it isn't cheap. It costs Jesus. Well, we, you see what it costs. Look at verse 7 again. In him we have redemption through his, say it, through his blood. There's the price right there, the death of Jesus. And this is why Peter said, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your vain manner of life but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot and without blemish. And this is why in the future, as Revelation 5 records in verse 12, when those of us who really are in Christ are in heaven, and, and in, if the scene is one of the most dramatic of all times. It just hasn't happened yet. And here is the Father holding the title deed to the earth. And who is worthy to open the seal? And no one is. And there's tears, there's crying in heaven. And suddenly one, like a lamb that is slain, comes to the Father, snatches the title deed from him, and, and makes his way to the earth to reclaim it. At which the chorus breaks out, Worthy is my testimony for Jesus. Is that what it says? Worthy is my confession of faith. No. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. That's where the worthiness comes in. I couldn't help but think of this when someone shared with me something that the great Alistair Begg said recently, give him a listen. Without the preaching of the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old uh, Fort Lauderdale question, if you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Hmm. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, Amen. because he. Think about the thief on the cross. Oh, what an immense, I can't, I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you were, you were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You'd never been in a Bible study. You'd never got baptized. You, never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and yet, and yet you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said. You know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, 
What do you mean you don't know? Well, because I, I don't know. Well, you know, we, uh, uh, did you? <laughs> excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor ranger. So we have just a few questions for you. First of all, are you, are you, are you, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> the guy said, I've never heard of it in my life. And, and what about, uh, let's just go to the doctrine of scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually in frustration, he says, on, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. Amen. Isn't that cool? That's true. It's his worthiness. It's Jesus' worthiness. Not mine, not yours, not your confession, not what you've done. And that makes you his. The worthiness of the lamb, his blood shed for you, that was the price that was paid. And if he bought you, wait for it, you are his. It was that very truth that literally freed this poor soul up on September 9, 1982. I was saved on September 6th, but two weeks later is when I was reading my Bible and smoking a bowl of marijuana, and they weren't going together real well. And for the very first time in my life, I read 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, which says, what? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Wait for it. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And that freed me. When you buy something, you own it. Last week, Pastor Jason preached a great sermon, and he reminded all of us, as he would remind his son and does remind his son, remember what? Who you are. I was stunned when he said that. Not because of what he said or the truth of what he said, and that's a true statement. Adopted and accepted in Christ, if indeed you are. But I was stunned because I used to say something very similar to my kids when they would leave the house, except I had a little bit different twist. I didn't say, remember who you are. I always said, remember whose you are. Both are true. But some of you, it's not true for, it's just not true for you. Because while God created you and formed you, you have not been redeemed by him. You've not been purchased, you've not been bought back, you've not accepted his grace, his forgiveness, his salvation. You're still in the collar of your sin. You're still bound to your sin, enslaved to your sin. And only Jesus can you redeem you from it. So in Christ, we have all of these things, including redemption. But we also have something that is just and maybe to many more precious, go ahead and say it. You're forgiven. And there's what it says. Forgiven of our trespasses, it says. This is a powerful word. 
Some of you think you can forgive yourself. By the way, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard before. How is that even possible? But the way we work it out is we just try to atone for our own sins, our own treacheries, create some distance. Here's how Jeremiah put it in chapter 2. He said this, Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. You can never atone for your personal treacheries. But some of you think, in your heart of hearts, you think, if I just create enough space, enough distance between my sin and my current life, all will be well, God will overlook my sin. And if you think that way, you're the only one thinking that way. Reminds me of what happened just the other day. I walked into the house to greet my wife. I had one of my favorite shirts on. I always feel good when I'm wearing one of my favorite shirts. And she looks at me and she goes, oh my goodness, honey, how long has that stain been there on your shirt? There is goober right here. I, I didn't know how many people I had encountered since I put that stain on there. I was the only one who hadn't seen it. It had to be pointed out to me. Just like it has to be pointed out to you the stain of your sin. You might be able to remove the stigma. You'll never remove the stain unless you experience redemption and forgiveness. Forgiveness is a powerful word. The word forgive is the Greek word aphiomi. It literally means to send away. In fact, it pictures something hurling away. To send away. That's what it pictures. And anybody who would have heard this, who had half a mind of the, of the Old Testament, would have remembered the scapegoat, which was the way God would visually, even that's, we're trying to visualize this for everyone here, young and old alike, all that we have in Christ. And God gave them a visual in the Old Testament when they would take two goats, they would kill one, shed its blood, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. That would be the covering for the sins of Israel. But they would also take another goat. And the high priest would press his hand upon the head of the goat and confess the sins of Israel for the year upon that goat. And then they would send it away with what the scripture says, a worthy man, who by that they just meant, we don't want this goat coming back because he pictures our sins. So we, he would, they would lead it to a cliff and you know, kind of kick the goat off the cliff. So it wouldn't come back. So when Paul talks about our sins being forgiven, they would picture it being sent away. When John the Baptist was preaching and Jesus comes up over the horizon, he says, look, there's the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sins of the world. They wouldn't have pictured the sacrificial lamb. They would have thought that, but they would have thought about the scapegoat. And their sins going away forever. By the way, this is the reason why I so despise those. I know I say this from time to time, but I have to. I so despise Joel Osteen and his lot. And the reason I despise them with every fiber of my soul 
is, is because by not preaching sin and judgment and hell, they never offer their adoring audiences the real, overwhelming, and eternal joy that only comes with those who've experienced forgiveness. The sending away of your sins in Christ. I remember, not like it was yesterday, like it was a minute ago. The day after I had trusted Jesus, I remember literally walking around the house and thinking, my sins are all forgiven. My sins, they're all gone. My, can this possibly, my sin, is it possible? I'd look at the scripture, yeah, they're gone. I was just overwhelmed by it and still am. That's why the psalmist said, Lord, if you would make, if you would keep a record of our sins, oh Lord, who would stand? But there is, wait for it, forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Some of you know, know your guilt, you feel your guilt, you feel bad about your guilt, but you've done nothing about your guilt but live in it or try to atone for it with some good work. After World War II, when the Nazis were defeated, one man was Albert Speer. He was one of Hitler's right, literally right-hand man. You'll see him in pictures with Hitler all the, he was his architect, literal architect. These unbelievable structures in Nuremberg and other places where Hitler would preach, they were created by that man. And then Hitler commandeered him to construct the war machine. So he would be, after the war, when those who hadn't killed themselves or escaped were corralled, 22 of the worst of the worst were corralled at the famous Nuremberg trial. There, Albert Speer was the only one of 22 to admit his guilt and his crimes. The only one. The rest of them refused to. He got a 20-year prison sentence. He was out in 1966 and did wrote books, did interviews, to sort of atone, you know, don't do this, don't do it, I did this and that. In 1981, Good Morning America interviewed him, the, the morning show. Charles Colson watched it. As he was interviewed, the interviewer recognized that Spear was still, sense, was still living in guilt, in spite of all that he'd done since living out his sentence. Here's, he asked him, are you still feeling guilty? Here's what Spear said. I could say I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment. But I cannot get rid of it. I don't think it would be possible to be totally cleared of my guilt, unquote. For all he did to acknowledge his guilt, Albert Speer never experienced forgiveness. And when Colson saw this, he thought to himself, I need, I need to write him and tell him about the love of Christ and the forgiveness that he can have in Jesus. But he died two months later, and Colson never got to him. Some of you 
as I speak, as this sermon is going, in this moment, are guilt-ridden for all that you have done apart from Christ. You feel awful about it. But you're going to go to the grave in that guilt, having never experienced redemption and forgiveness because you've never gone to the one who can take your sins away. Don't do that. Come to him today. He is a merciful Savior, and he'll take you. One more gift. One more gift for this morning. It's in the text, and it's used repeatedly within the, 12 times, in fact. Say it. God has not only redeemed and forgiven, he's graced you. And you know it's, it's used repeatedly in the book of Ephesians. And the one that's most popular, you know it. For by grace have you been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It is the, that's what grace is. It's the gift. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that we can't boast about it, right? It's the word charis. And it's, it's, look at this, it's called the riches of his grace. Look at verse, again, in him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. It's the riches, not just great, it's the riches of his grace. The old acronym said it best, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's pretty good. It's rich. Grace in the Bible is rich in its meaning. The word charis is a multifaceted word in and of itself. It conveys sweetness. We talk about people who have grace in their lives, right? Kindness, joy, pleasure, delight. It conveys loveliness and even thanks. We say, will you say grace? What are we saying? Say thanks to God. That's what we're saying. All of that is wrapped up. It's rich in its meaning. It may well be the most beautiful word in all of the Bible. It's rich in action because it gives, because it's a gift. A gift by, by definition is something that you give, you take action toward. And we know the scripture, by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It doesn't merely withhold. That's what mercy does. Mercy is God withholding, and thank you, Lord, for doing so, what I deserve, namely judgment, right? Grace is God giving what I don't deserve, his loving kindness in Christ, right? And it's lavished. Did you see that in verse 8? It's lavished upon us. The word lavished literally means to go beyond the expected measure. Remember, so as I was thinking about this, I was meditating on this word lavished. How do I, how do I illustrate this? And a, a thought came to me. My, of my kids, a number of them were waiters and waitresses during high school and college days. And I remember several, you probably, probably, I don't know, 10 years ago plus, we were out to eat one day, and I think the going tip was 15% at the time. And I took out 15%, and I put it down. And my son, who was a waiter, said, Dad, you never just give what is expected. I said, okay. 
He was a waiter. He'd experienced Baptist and the way they give, which is kind of a shame. Something is still 5%. Some just leave. He'd also experienced those who would lavish a tip upon him. And I, I went over. And it wasn't very short. It was only a short time after I was out with a friend thinking about this, and he was paying for it. He got out his calculator and calculated 15%. And I remember in my mind thinking, oh, God, save me from gracelessness. You have lavished it upon me. Let me show the same. It's rich in power. That we also know uh, where Paul, who's hurting, says to Jesus, you know, take this away from me. And Jesus replies in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness, right? So what is, in that context, grace is power. It is The grace that saves is the grace that sustains. Same grace. And I remember talking with a friend one day, driving down the highway, trying to console him, trying to comfort him. He loved Christ, not knowing what to do in his hurt. I said, I I told him about the grace of God, how it was the power to sustain him. And just then a semi-truck drove by us. I wish I had a camera in those days. It said grace right across the side of it. I said, right there, that's what God does. He just dumps that on you. It's rich in emptying. Rich in emptying. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was, what? Rich. Yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty we might be made rich. By his grace, Jesus became poor to make you and I rich. That's why the text says, according to the riches of his grace. It doesn't say out of the riches. It says according to his riches. J.D. Rockefeller was a household name, still is. He lived 100 years ago. And today's, he was the first billionaire this country ever knew, the world ever knew. And in today's economy, he'd be worth $190 billion. He famously gave out dimes to young men. In fact, he estimates he gave out $35,000 worth of dimes. Now, $35,000 worth of that's nothing to sneeze at. But let's, let's be honest. It's, it wasn't according to his riches. That was out of his riches, right? What Jesus has given us, his grace lavished upon us is in accordance with his riches. The grace is the kindness of Christ given to undeserving sinners like you, like me. The other day I came across a story, a true story of a little boy who had crafted a handcrafted a sailboat, a little sailboat. And it was beautiful. And he lived on one of the great lakes, and he would put it along the shore and just enjoy his beautiful sailboat. And one day, an unexpected gust of wind took his little sailboat out, 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 
disappeared. And he was just heartbroken. He went to that shoreline every day for a month, walking up and down, waiting for that boat to make its way back. It never did. But imagine his surprise when he's walking into the town a couple months later, and in the storefront window was his boat on sale for a steep price. He couldn't believe it. He walked right in there, walks up to the proprietor, that's my boat. He goes, no, it's not. <laughs> no, that's my boat. I, I actually created that boat. I, that's my boat. And the proprietor says this, I paid a fisherman good money for that boat. If you want it back, you'll have to buy it back. And he saved up his money and did exactly that. And on his way home, he spoke to his boat. <laughs> he said, you're twice mine now because I made you and because I bought you. When I read that story, I thought of God's words through Isaiah when he said to Israel, he said, he said hear, O Israel, I am the Lord who created you, who formed you. Fear not, because I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name, and wait for it, you are mine. Are you his? That's the question. In Christ, we have redemption and forgiveness and lavishing grace. Some of you are living in guilt right now. You don't have to live in it anymore. Go to the one who will forgive you of your sins. He's already done the job. He's already paid the price. Come to Christ so that you can hear his words. You are mine. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we love you and bless your name and thank you. Thank you for the doctrines of grace. Thank you for this plethora of truth all coming out of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for redemption, Lord Jesus, for buying us back out of the slave market, uncollaring us. But God, right now in this room, there are so, some who still have the collar of sin upon them. They're being led to their own demise. Would you have mercy on them? And if that's you and you say, I'm sick of this color, I want it off, Jesus will take it off. Come to him for forgiveness. Believe on him and he will save you. He'll give you the grace and it'll just keep coming. And as we think about what you have done for us, Lord, what a way to end our time this morning, but to celebrate the Lord's table and to think about as we make our way, those of us who really know you, to these tables, as we make our way there to think, I am redeemed. I have been purchased by the one who created me. I've been uncollared. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for grace. And God, we pray these things in Jesus' name.